Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Um, do you feel like you've been run over by a steamroller the same way I do? I've been actually managing to get life, Nadia. Wow. Life from watching Game Center CX throughout the entire week on Twitch. That is a really good idea because Game Center CX is so much fun. I had no idea that it was still going. Neither did I. I'm glad it is. But I watched their 10th anniversary uh, event at the... God, I can't remember. It's a historic venue in Japan. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah, there were some good ones in there. Yeah, there's some great qu- there's some great quotes from the show. Like, there is not an encouraging word on that screen is my favorite. My, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed their run through Sheer and the Wanderer. Mm-hmm. That sounds really cool. I'd like to see that. It was a very beautiful-looking Super Nintendo game in a way that maybe I never really appreciated until I watched their run through it. Uh, lots of varied environments, uh, classical Japanese look to it, uh, J- Japanese samurai look to it, uh, uh, lots of interesting mechanics, some huge, beautiful bosses. Uh, when you ride the phoenix at the end, it's glorious to behold. It almost made me want to play Sheer in the Wanderer. Yeah, sounds like something I'd like to play. The whole riding the phoenix at the end is a very Dragon Quest nod. It looks like a brutal game, though. There's so much (laughs) going into it. Yeah, it never came to the West, did it? Uh, I mean, eventually it did with, like, the Wii and that kind of thing. Right, okay, yeah, I remember now. Yeah, there are various versions that did come West, just maybe not the SNES version. Right, and that's the one I'm kind of interested in, especially if it's beautiful, because I have a special interest in beautiful SNES games. Anyway, Game Center CX has been just carrying me through. It's been giving me a lot of nostalgia for the GBA, which is funny because... <laughs> Convenient. And it's been giving me a lot of nostalgia for the early 2000s, was what I meant to say. because, Which is funny to say, because I never really expected that I would ever have nostalgia for the early 2000s. That was kind of a bad time, honestly. It really was, and it's actually funny. So, a friend of mine on Twitter was complaining about uh, Shaggy and Scooby-Doo Get a Clue, which was a terrible early aughts Scooby-Doo cartoon, which has a really, really awful intro that's aggressively early aughts with the sound, like that screaming, pounding, in-your-face, like, Alexis on fire sort of thing going on. And it was just, I just listened to that and I'm like, wow, I never thought I'd have nostalgia for the early aughts, but that is definitely it right there. I always thought of the early aughts as a very tacky time. <laughs> yeah, it feels like, it feels like, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It was like almost a drift. But when I watch stuff like Veronica Mars and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Game Center CX and I see those flip phones and... Mm, yeah, when I think of it in terms of technology nostalgia, I suddenly understand where I am and where I was at the time. It puts out of my mind all of that stuff that wasn't so fun, like the Iraq War. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that was re- that was really fantastic when having a husband who lives in America and going down to visit America when you're from Canada and Canada has refused to be part of the war and you hear all about it. Awkward. <laughs> Very awkward. Yeah, I've been uh, watching True Blood and that is a late 2000s gosh darn show, I gotta say. Yeah, they're really, it, it's hard to really put a finger on the feeling of the aughts, but it is there. It's slowly taking form in my memory. I think of things like my my uh, invincible Nokia brick with the really like beepy ringtone from like the Killers, which was like Mr. Brightside or something. 
I was living in Japan through 2006 to 2008. So I was basically completely absent from American pop culture at that time. So there's a lot of stuff that happened in that roughly 2007 period that I'm just completely unaware of. Stuff happened. That's all you need to know. You're good. I watched uh, BoJack Horseman, though, has a flashback to 2007, which is a pretty remarkable tribute to 2007, I got to say, from the music to the fashion to the culture. And I was just like, wow, okay, that was a very specific time and place. I don't even really think of it as a nostalgic era, but I guess that's where we are now. I feel like once smartphones became a thing, that was like really the start of where we are now. I remember I was at my parents' house in 2008, nine. I don't remember when it was. And my brother and I were watching TV, and there was a commercial for the iPhone, the first iPhone. And my brother said, that's going to change the world. Man, he was right. Not for the better, in my opinion. It, yeah, I can't decide. It's It changed the world, period. And that's where I end it. Like, eh, both. Well, since this is an early 2000s episode of Acts of the Blood God, it only feels appropriate that we should talk about the Game Boy Advance for our yes. console RPG quest since we kind of forgot to do it before we did the GameCube one. <laughs> Whoopsie. And we still need to do the Wonderswan one as well, which I think even came before the GBA. So. It did, yeah, because I remember, uh, well, I'll get into it, but the GBA did have a port of Final Fantasy IV Advance that the Wonderswan got first, so yeah. So uh, it's all a little bit out of whack, but don't worry. I promise that we will get to the Wonderswan and its ilk, perhaps for the next one. Everybody gets a hug. In the meantime, if you enjoy the show, can I recommend that you leave us a positive review over on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice? We really appreciate it. It improves the visibility of the show, etc. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And if you want to reach us, uh, well, we've been having a lot of really good conversations in the show notes comments lately. Lots of people having extended thoughts on the various topics of the episode, and I really enjoy them. So you should go take part in that that's uh it's always a blast isn't it nadia it really is yeah thank you so much for people who respond like not just in the show notes but also like so people who send me dms and people who tweet at me and people who email me like you know good old-fashioned email good for you so yes thank you very much do you know that there anybody below 20 probably doesn't have an email account now you just blew my mind like how can you not have an email account what do you do <laughs> I mean, they have WhatsApp, and they have Instagram, and they have text messaging, and they have Twitter, and so they don't really see a point in having an email account because they're not professionals. God, my, my Hotmail account just, just wept. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and if you want to send me a DM, you can reach me on Twitter. Uh, my DMs are open, and also I'm at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. We also have a newsletter that comes out every single Wednesday. And Nadia, what was the topic of this week's newsletter? Uh, this week's newsletter was a bit of a rehash of last week's discussion, which was about Mario, uh, Paper Mario in general, uh, of course, oriented around the, the Origami King, which is coming out in July. Um, basically, I mentioned how there is a lot of controversy around Paper Mario, and we, t we discussed that last episode, so please tune in if you haven't heard it. Uh, but the short version is um, a lot of people hold up Paper Mario games to the th standard of Thousand Year Door, which is a quite a high standard and is a, is a special game. But I believe it's time to just kind of let go and start judging Paper Mario games by their own merits, because by all accounts, uh, games like uh, 
color splash are actually really fantastic, but people just won't give it a chance. So I'm really hoping people give Origami King a chance, even if it's not exactly what you want in terms of like a thousand year door follow up. These games are, are very charming to me. And I think uh, if you open your heart, you'll find love. I was pretty harsh on the Paper Mario games, wasn't I? You were a little bit harsh, yes. Mola underscore Ram commented, I think Kat should have a regular segment called Fight Me. And every week she says, hey, you know what that thing you really love? Was it ever really that good? You're the reasons why it wasn't. And then proceeds to list them. And then proceeds to list them and I just kind of sit here and shake my head. Yeah, so, yeah, like, I am here to destroy your rose-tinted glasses, Nani. That's my job. You just kind of whip them off my face and just kind of crush them under your heel and, and kick the pieces down to the sewer. Stomp on them a whole lot. Yeah, <laughs> turn them into <laughs> turn them into pink powder. One game that is deserving of our rose-colored glasses, Nadia, Witcher celebrated its fifth anniversary this past week. That game I that you haven't played it's yet. Five. Yeah, I, I have it on my Switch, and I I started to play it, but uh, I got to get back into it. It's probably better suited for the PlayStation. VG twenty four seven had a large interview with their writer. Uh, they had various topics that they ended up covering. We wrote about them over on US Gamer. Among them, they regretted not spending more time on series past, which, I mean, it's at this point, it's a given that Witcher 4 is going to be a, is going to be all about Siri. Siri is the best. It's going to be a while before we see Witcher 4, of course. Yeah, well, they got to still wrap up Cyberpunk 2077. But at this point, so they've managed to bury the hatchet with the writer. The Netflix series is ridiculously popular. Any new Witcher game is going to be one of the biggest RPGs, like fully on the level of Fallout and that kind of thing. I mean, it's a no-brainer. You got to do it. Yeah, I'm just so proud of those little CD Projekt Red guys and remembering them in their little corner booth at E3 2006. Uh, Another game that is coming out this next week, Fantasy Star Online 2, launching on PC. Nadia... You're the MMORPG person on this team at this point. Would you give it a shot? I already gave the beta a shot, and I did enjoy it, but as we have discussed in the past, I only have time for one MMORPG in my heart, and that's the really excellent Final Fantasy XIV. Another problem with Fantasy Star 2 is, even though it has a lot of merits, it is really kind of an old-fashioned MMORPG, and if you go on our site, you will find a write-up by Mike, that tells you exactly like what the series needs to do to kind of you know modernize itself. That said, I appreciate it for what it is because it is a very kind of distinct sci-fi slash fantasy RPG, which even if it doesn't subscribe to all fantasy star tropes, has, has some references in there that I caught even as like kind of a casual fantasy star fan. So it has its fan base. It's a long-lived RPG, and I do hope people have fun playing it. Bring back Fantasy Star 5. Just make that. <laughs> That would be an, uh, that would be a really interesting game because they just kind of wrapped up the whole story, but I'd still play it. And finally, Nadia, uh, Perfect Dark celebrated its 20th anniversary on Friday, and a lot of people have been having a lot of nostalgia for Rare. And as it happened, you talked to Grant Kirkhope and David Wise about their experiences during the golden age of Rare. Yes, I did. I have that profile slash interview up on our site. Please go ahead and read it. Um, it was really interesting, really great to talk to both of them, uh, particularly Wise, because Wise's resume goes way back to my earliest days of playing on the NES and just being kind of enthralled by 
Wizards and Warriors. I was at a friend's birthday party and her, her brothers were playing Wizards and Warriors. And I was like, holy crap, that's amazing. The music that I am hearing right now is, is just amazing. And David Wise, like if you look at his resume, um, you will find he just kind of slammed one, two, and after another, like from, I'd say, 80, 87 to 91, like just bang, bang, bang for the NES. And a lot of his scores are just really incredible, even though he admitted to me uh, when I asked him about the Cobra Triangle score, he said, yeah, there came a point where I just would like make scores by fooling around. And even though he was only fooling around, like he, he did a really great job. And of course, his most famous work, or arguably his most famous work, is Donkey Kong Country and Donkey Kong Country 2, which both have really, really excellent soundtracks. I listen to the Donkey Kong Country 2 soundtrack all the time. Uh, Mining, Melan Mining Melancholy is one of my favorite song, uh, favorite game songs of all time. So I talked to him a little bit about that and how he got around the SNES's limitations, because for all we praise the SNES's sound capabilities, and they deserve it, it was a very hard system to program music for because you had the ability to put in samples and you had eight eight channels to play with, but you only had like 64K dedicated to uh, sound on the SNES. And you could use cartridge space to kind of make up for that, but as we kind of discussed in my Ted Woolsey interview, which is also on the site, please read it, cartridge space was extremely expensive in the 90s. So you wanted to take up as little as possible and... For his song Aquatic Ambiance, which is one of his best-known songs, he did a really, really interesting thing with, like, kind of making the, the song out of tons and tons of tiny little samples that he coded and stitched together. And it's a real, it's a, it's a whole thing. It's really interesting, and I think you should go ahead and read it. All right, I agree. You should go and totally check out Nadia's excellent profile of Grant Kirkhope and David Wise. In the meantime, we're going to continue right on to our console RPG quest into the RPG legacy at the Game Boy Advance. Don't go away. Nadia, what's your first memory of the Game Boy Advance? Uh, I'm going to be very, very shameful right now and say my first my first memory of the Game Boy Advance is pirating all its games. <laughs> wow, Nadia, you're I'm such sorry. a bad person. I was I was just married in that era. Like I can't remember the exact date it came out, but it was when I was first married and extremely poor. I had no chance whatsoever of getting a Game Boy Advance, but I went ahead and, and grabbed a lot of the games, which, to the credit of the games and the people who developed them, has some very clever lockout technology, so they got me pretty good at times. But I did eventually acquire a Game Boy Advance SP, which is, uh, design-wise, the SP is one of my favorite favorite systems ever. The only thing that keeps it from being perfect is that when you shut the clamshell, it doesn't turn off like it does with the DS, and of course that stupid, stupid, stupid headphone jack, that which can go to hell and die where it belongs. <laughs> yeah, I got a Game Boy Advance at launch, Nadia. Oh, good for you. You had to, like, ruin your eyes to see the screen on those ones. Yeah, I had a lot of regrets about doing that, actually. <laughs> I think, a, I think that. a lot of people did. Because the Game Boy Advance at launch wasn't extremely great. Uh, no. It had no backlight. I probably should have spent that money on a PS2 instead. That would have been a better purchase. Not only did it not have a backlight, I think it still used to put disposable batteries. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, did, it did do that. And... 
Its launch lineup wasn't amazing. I think probably Super Mario Brothers 2 Advance was the only really good one out there. Yeah, and actually that was a port or like an an adaptation of Super Mario 2, and it was pretty good. I know my husband played a lot of it when he had the chance, Uh, but I remember my mother seeing a commercial for that and saying, are they just reselling you Super Mario 2? Why are they doing that? She thought it was a huge ripoff on Earth. But it did have the very compressed voice samples of the Mario characters and... Toad. Toad. (laughs) (laughs) It's like when they did with Link to the Past, where they also had Link doing that, yeah, for no good reason. They just wanted to have something that made it seem more advanced in the Super Nintendo game. Did I don't think I ever played the GBA adaptation of A Link to the Past, or not very much. Did they have the voices in there? Yeah, yep, they did. Uh, pointless. Yeah, it was totally pointless, but it did have four swords, so you can't begrudge it too much. Yeah, I did play a lot of four swords, even by myself, I had fun. But yeah, so I bought a GBA at launch. I played a lot of the games that came out for it, including uh, Golden Sun. And then when the SP came out, I was very poor. And I think I bought the GBA SP and I maybe had $18 left in my pocket after that. (laughs) For how long? (laughs) I Well, until I got a paycheck, because I did have a job, thankfully. Mm -hmm. Uh, My point is... Maybe don't be like me. Save your money. <laughs> yeah, but the whole point of being young and stupid is to be young and stupid with your purchases. My GBA SP, however, was a totally worthwhile purchase because having that backlight was huge. I played that thing for hours and hours and hours and hours. It kept me company through many long, boring nights working security, and mm. I loved it. I raised many a Pokemon on my GBA SP. And I ultimately uh, still have a lot of those, too. When I worked as a mall custodian at night, we we used to, like, wash and wax floors and stuff like that. There used to be a lot of instances where you'd see security guards kind of minding displays of, like, say there was an antique show or something like that. And they just kind of watch over it all night. And that just seemed like a very, very boring job. And I had a job where I just mopped floors all night. I, at the time, I kind of saw the GBA as a little bit of a tweener in terms of being stuck between the original Game Boy and the Nintendo DS. But I kept buying GBA games uh, over the years, especially when I was living in Japan, because, of course, it was region-free. And even now, I I feel like I have really nice feelings toward the GBA now. I have warm feelings. It, it's the last dying embers of the Super Nintendo era, and I kind of miss it. Yeah, that's kind of the thing with the GBA, because I do have good feelings about it overall, is that it was a good tool for making SNES games that I loved portable and sometimes adding really cool features to those games. The only drawback was the sometimes the soundtrack suffered, which, as we just went over, the SNES had an incredible sound chip that was really compressed for the for the GBA. Yeah, you saw it in so many of those games, like Aria of Sorrow, which uh, a lot of people consider to be one of the very best Castlevania games. I do. Yeah. I think it's really fantastic. Really compressed play playback on that thing. It wasn't great. It wasn't, but you can tell when you can tell when developers and musicians did their best because Aria of Sorrow has one song that I adore, and it plays in the the Hanging Gardens area. And there are instances where you can tell that the that the composer knew that they were within like certain really strict limitations, so they used those limitations to their advantage. But it was rare. Most of the time, especially with ports, 
you would just get like almost a a shot for shot recreation of a song using the tinny GBA instruments and it just never worked out as well. So let's look back on some of the history of the GBA. Let's go back to Nintendo circa 2001 when it was getting ready to release the GameCube. It was coming off the disappointment of the Nintendo 64, but its handheld business was still thriving. The Game Boy had been very successful and had managed to stay alive around a lot longer than anybody anticipated. As it turns out, Nintendo was actually working on a follow-up as early as 1996 called Project Atlantis, and it would have had a improved CPU and all of that. The problem was that the CPU was had some performance issues, and it was really chunky. It was a big thing. <laughs> yeah, I saw pictures of it. You can find them if you look online because they've like kind of gone over it at shows and whatnot. It was it was a big boy. It was a chunky boy. Thankfully for Nintendo, a little game called Pokemon ended up sustaining it all the way through. So it was able to basically claw its way to 2001, even though that the Game Boy was desperately old by that yeah, point. Yeah, you could tell because they did some hardware revisions to make it look, you know, a little slimmer. In Japan, they got a backlight, which I think is pretty cool. But the black and white GBA was, by the time Pokemon even came out, it was really hanging on by threads. It's interesting to see what Nintendo was considering for the GBA. I did not realize that it was, among other things, looking into the possibility of a modem. Wow. Now that would have been something. Can you imagine putting a modem in your GBA? (laughs) That would be like, wow, like 32K maybe. And just like, what would you do? Go on message boards and stuff or play online? God, that would be terrible. They were also looking into things that would make their way into other Nintendo handhelds, including, get this, 3D uh, gameplay, much what like you would find in the 3DS. It's just that the GBA couldn't produce a satisfying stereoscopic uh, 3D look because the CPU wasn't strong enough. Nintendo sure had a thing for 3D. They just would not let it go because we heard of that with the GameCube as well. Like they were making a screen that could display 3D and I think even Luigi's Mansion was developed with 3D in mind, and of course we have the 3DS, and then I guess when the 2DS came out, that experiment was finally over. The GBA, of course, was released as a non-backlit version. I strained my eyes many a time playing Castlevania Circle of the Moon on that thing. Yeah, that was, uh, there came a time, and we, we will talk about this probably when we get a little deeper into the games, but the early games did not really account for how badly, how dark those screens were especially those early Castlevania games. Later on, developers started using much brighter colors, and of course, Boktai did a whole thing with like sunlight, which was really clever. But for a while, yeah, GBA could produce some of the nicest sprites I've ever seen in my life, but God help you if you wanted to see them. It had a very different CPU. from. The, it's compared a lot to the SNES, but it has very different CPU in a lot of ways. It would emulate the Mode 7 effects and everything. It could, in some ways, do 3D effects that were more appealing than what you would find on the SNES. But as we already mentioned, while it could produce a lot of really good music, uh, a lot of it, the bit rate was really bad and the speaker was tiny. And so sound was not a strong point for the GBA. It really wasn't. Um, going back to that pseudo 3D for a minute, if you go to the Stop Skeletons from Fighting YouTube channel, they have a lot of videos that go over these 3D uh, Game Boy Advance games, and there were a lot, and some of them were actually quite good. So you'd be surprised what the GBA was capable of, but RPGs didn't tend to use that 3D very much. The GBA ultimately lasted from 2001 to about 2005, so it was four years. 
which all things considered is quite a compressed amount of time compared to how long the DS and the Game Boy were able to hang around. It felt like blink of an eye and then the GBA was gone, Nadia. Yeah, um, I think Nintendo released the DS with the intention of it not being a replacement for <laughs> for the Game Boy Advance, but guess what happened? Of course it got replaced. So the GBA really did feel like it died before its time, before developers could really squeeze everything out of it uh, the way they did with the Game Boy. So that's a bit of a shame. Nevertheless, it was very popular because it had no competition. There was no PSP, the Nokia N-Gage, which is not a thing that we we're going to be covering on this. <laughs> oh, shoot. We might bring it up on the Wonder Swan episode. I don't know. Yeah, that was In the passing. one where where people were making memes, with like holding the phone to their 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 face and it looked like a banana. I don't know. It was a really weird time. The taco phone. The taco phone. Yes. Oh God, that was stupid. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall and listening to executives pitch this garbage and having to be just like, uh? Would you be shocked to know that we're also not going to do an Ouya episode? There was a. When people say Ouya, it's the sound of dreams dying. Nevertheless, GBA was very successful. It ultimately sold 81 million units, and uh, the Nintendo was trying to integrate the GBA into the GameCube whenever possible because its console business was really suffering at the time. The GBA was definitely carrying Nintendo in a lot of ways. Yeah, there have been many instances where Portable has carried Nintendo. Uh, I mean, even when the Game Boy had that surge of life, that was when the N64 was kind of flagging even in North America, where its best, you know, market was Japan, it was pretty much out for the count by that point. But, you know, Pokemon was hugely hot. So, so let's talk about about the GBA's RPG legacy, Nadia. It was pretty strong right out of the shoot, and one of the big games, and probably one of its defining RPGs, came out its first year, and that game was Golden Sun, a game that was made by Camelot which was also responsible for Nintendo's various Mario sports games. And, I mean, you look at Golden Sun today, it is a quite a beautiful game. Uh, one of the most beautiful games on the GBA, I would say. Yeah, they really took advantage. Like, I just mentioned how they didn't really take advantage of 3D uh, for RPGs, but in Golden Sun's case, they really did a lot of really cool trickery with the battle scenes, with scaling and what have you. Um, I personally just never got into Golden Sun. I should give it another try. I gave it a try, and I was just like, oh, this is fine, and I bounced pretty hard, but uh, it does have its fans, and if you look at my notes, I added the point that um, Golden Sun fans will shank their grandmothers for the chance to get a sequel or a remake, so they're serious about their work. I mean, one did come out on the DS. Yeah, that's true. Um, I can't remember how it did, though. It's been such a long time. Well, uh, Tetra Grammaton responded, actually, that, quote, Golden Sun Dark Dawn killed its franchise. Oof. Well, there you go, then. <laughs> for being an iterative sequel that doubled down on the worst elements of previous games and muted the best elements. Mm. I'd love another Golden Sun that got away from Dark Dawn's obvious sequel hook and instead went into the far into the future or past of Waynard. More puzzles, fewer key items, more openness, <clears throat> fewer copy-pasted archetypes, more really digging into what the world looks like when people go too far with power and how you need to check it. I feel like Golden Sun is still a very, very valuable name, and I think it'd be silly if Nintendo abandoned it completely the way they have. If there was a Golden Sun on the Nintendo Switch, a certain segment of RPG fans would go bananas. Oh, they'd hit the ceiling. It'd be a lot of fun to see. Like I like watching reaction videos from the Nintendo World Store when 
you know, they do uh, Nintendo Directs, and they just lose their minds when something fun comes up on the screen. If, if it was Golden Sun, the roof would be off that building. Unfortunately for everybody, Camelot, it's been a minute since Camelot has made a proper Golden Sun game, about 10 years at this point, which is actually kind of remarkable. Wow. And it's mostly focused on the sports games, and the sports games haven't been all that great. I did not really care for Mario Tennis Aces. It's been about two years since we last saw a game from Camelot, so I wonder if they're working on something for Switch and we just don't know it. I hope so, because yes, Camelot does do a lot of sports games, and I did they do the last Mario Tennis? Because I have heard that one was very, very mediocre, and they kept mm-hmm. adding to it for some reason. But a Mario sports game by Camelot, when done properly, is a lot of fun. I think the last one I really enjoyed was Mario Golf Toadstool Tour or something like that. So I'm going to be the person who kind of craps on the thing that you love and say <laughs> I mean, that's that. That's what you do. I played through the entirety of the original Golden Sun and did not feel the need to pick up the second half of it because, by the way, Golden Sun, the original, ends on a cliffhanger and you they asked you to buy the second part, which didn't really sit particularly well with me. I enjoyed the battle system, which is like kind of based around summons. It reminds me a little bit of the Esper system from Final Fantasy VI. Only yeah, have that was pretty cool. The graphics were great. I mean, I love the, the pseudo 3D look. Uh, it looks better on YouTube videos than it did on the actual screen. It looked a little compressed and crammed on the smaller screen. Especially but, if you didn't have backlighting. Yeah, especially if you didn't have the backlighting. But uh, I, it kind of reminds me of a it's a little bit of a Final Fantasy knockoff in some ways, especially in the way that it has all of the the summons. But at the time, Square wasn't really supporting uh, putting mm-hmm. Final Fantasy games on Nintendo's platforms, so and you took what you took what you could get, right? You really did with the with the RPGs at that point in Nintendo, because if you were coming off the N sixty four onto the Game Boy Advance, you were starved for anything. The enemies looked amazing; like they were yes. huge. The bosses were awesome. I don't remember anything about the story or caring at all about the characters. All I know is I think the main character is named Isaac. <laughs> yeah, it, it I was. That. It was fine. It was definitely of that second tier kind of RPG in terms of storytelling and everything. But man, it sure was a beautiful game. It's definitely one of those games where if we did get a sequel or a remake or something for the Switch, I'd be all in and say I am definitely ready to give this game another chance. So Nadia, I mentioned already Super Mario Advance 2 or Super Mario Advance, sorry, which was actually Super Mario Brothers 2. Uh, and it really set the tone early for the Game Boy Advance. When I think of the GBA, I often think of Super Nintendo ports. There sure were a lot of them, and plenty of RPG ports as well. Uh, Breath of Fire 2 was one of them. Uh, Tales of Fantasia. Mother 1 and 2 got ported to it. Lunar Legend was kind of a port for it. And then, of course, there were all the Final Fantasy ports. There were a whole lot of Super Nintendo ports. Um... But you know what? A lot of them added something special, or really terrible, to be honest with you. Uh, going back to Breath of Fire 2, which was a game I love but has a terrible translation, Capcom put the game on on uh, Game Boy Advance. with They just added some fancy portraits, because I think Nintendo's rule was if you're going to port something, you have to add to it, which is fair. And Capcom said, okay, and they put like character portraits no one really needed. Instead of fixing that god-awful translation, so... That was that. I was never a fan of that port. Tales of Fantasia. Now, that's an interesting one because that has one of the, the the most infamous localization mistakes of all time. And what had happened was apparently whoever was 
localizing the document for uh, Tales of Fantasia back in the day, their Microsoft Word, or whatever they were using, changed the word Ragnarok, which refers to a war in the game, to the word kangaroo. So every time a character speaks of the War of Ragnarok, they talk about the War of Kangaroo. <laughs> and if you go to Legends of Localization, you'll find a complete explanation for that where Clyde, the proprietor of the site, kind of goes through the motions to see, well, how did that even happen? And it turns out uh, Microsoft Word in, say, 2001, 2003-ish, did not recognize the, na- the word Ragnarok. Now, we're actually really, really spoiled these days of how, just how thorough, uh, you know, uh, spelling checks are and in online dictionaries are and everything like but back in the day they were very very primitive so here was this this microsoft word document someone did search and replace and it turned ragnarok into kangaroo and no one really you know caught this error and so we have a what is considered a really terrible port of a really really special game for the super nintendo most fans don't recommend the gba port if you have other alternatives for obvious reasons well, one GBA port that I would recommend is Final Fantasy V, which I think is probably the definitive port, the definitive version of that game. Would you agree, Nadia? Yes, Final Fantasy V is by far the definitive version of the game. Good luck finding it, but it basically uh, upgrades the game, adds, I think it adds a bunch of like quality of life features, but it gives a really good translation, whereas the PlayStation translation for the, the release that we finally got in the West was really, really terrible. We're talking about a translation that turned the word Wyvern into Wyburn, and that's famous. That's another infamous localization mistake. Um, so Final Fantasy V, that's the best way to play it. Like I said, good luck finding it. You'll find approximations of Final Fantasy V GBA on Steam and mobile where they add those really terrible graphics filters, but it's probably better than nothing if you're looking to play Final Fantasy V in an easy way. Uh, 4 and 6 were also really good ports. 4 was a very interesting port for me because I've always been a Final Fantasy IV fan, and the translation on the SNES was not very good, of course. Uh, The translation that they put on the Final Fantasy collection on the PlayStation was okay but the game had really terrible load times and it was not a good port gba port kind of cleaned up the graphics cleaned up the translation added a whole bunch of really interesting like extra stuff like uh dungeons that the characters could go through individually and learn a little bit more about their their histories and their past so that is another really definitive good version of the game uh, i think it was actually surpassed by the uh, psp version uh that came out the complete collection for final fantasy 4 so you don't really have to strain your butt to go find the GBA port of Final Fantasy IV. Just go ahead and try to grab the one on PlayStation Portable. And six, six, I talked a little bit about in my Ted Woolsey uh, feature because that has a, a translation that kind of keeps Woolsey's Woolseyisms, like his whole like tone, and cleans it up because Woolsey himself will admit that the translation suffered a lot because of space constructions on the SNES. So, in a way, the port for Final Fantasy VI on the GBA cleans up that translation, really kind of adds to it so that everything sounds a lot more complete, and does a really good job of it. Again, it's kind of hard to find, and you can find approximations of it on Steam and uh, mobile, but you will be using that horrible, horrible filter. On the plus side, the GBA version of Final Fantasy VI has really, really... They tried their hardest with the soundtrack, but it sounds so terrible, squished down into the GBA... Whereas the 
Steam and mobile versions use those use the original soundtrack, so you get the full experience just with awful graphics. On the GBA, you could get Final Fantasy one, two, four, five, and six. That's yeah, good. that was that was you're right. Dawn of Souls that was a very good port. I played that as well. I've never been a huge fan of Final Fantasy one, believe it or not, but I did enjoy Dawn of Souls. I tried to enjoy Final Fantasy two. It didn't quite work out, but I did give it my all. Dawn of Souls is controversial among original Final Fantasy fans, if I recall correctly. It's certainly a lot easier than exactly. the original game. I think, just to give you an example, it uses MP instead of charges. Like, instead of, say you use Cure and it costs one charge in the original Final Fantasy, they changed that in the GBA Dawn of Souls to make it just regular MP, like everyone would be familiar with in Final Fantasy. So, yeah, I think some people are, are definitely purists, and they prefer, I think there was a more... Uh, a more literal translation of Final Fantasy 1 on the PSP that some purists prefer. The original Final Fantasy, or say Final Fantasy Dawn of Souls and Final Fantasy 4 for GBA were the first times that I beat those respective games. Oh, really? Yeah, the, it was, um, for me, it was the first time realizing, wow, Final Fantasy, Store, Final Fantasy 4 has a pretty good story going on because I could understand it finally. Uh, but you're right, I think Dawn of Souls was my first time really finishing the original Final Fantasy because as controversial as it is to say, I did have a very hard time with the original game when I was a kid and just found it a little bit cumbersome, whereas the the MP system just made me feel more like, okay, this is what I'm familiar with, I'm going to finally finish this damn game. On that note, Square was back! We already yes. talked about we already talked about this with the GameCube and the N64 and the PlayStation and the PS2, but Square was not on the best of terms with Nintendo at this time. And it put Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles on the GameCube. That was exciting. But it supported the GBA a lot more because the GBA was actually, get this, successful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was. I remember being on a message board at the time and someone saying, wow, Square Enix must have just started salivating when they saw the GBA. And they certainly did. And uh, one of probably the foremost Square Enix game to be on the GBA was Final Fantasy Tactics Advance, which I would say is pretty controversial, I think. I, there are people who love it, and there are people who are not that into it. I think that the original Final Fantasy Tactics is the superior game, has a better story, and that kind of thing. I can understand why people were kind of put off by the weird dream world change to it. And especially the judges and their randomized rule set and everything. But it was actually my first engagement with Final Fantasy Tactics as a series. And I played all the way through it in probably 2006 when I was living in Japan. And I loved it. I thought it was a great game. Definitely beautiful. A beautiful game on the GBA, I think. It was. I never played it. But my impression from fans of Final Fantasy Tactics who played it said, this is for babies. So yeah. <laughs> I just never I just never played it. I do know that people tend to talk more about War of the Lions, which is an excellent adaptation. I liked that they put a lot more emphasis on the different species of Ivalice. Yes, that is what, like, I have looked up lore about the game. And they do have, like, the um, the Viera and they have, like, kind of the Fiol, which are a mix of Viera and, and something else. They have, like, a lot of cool... Ivalice uh, lore going on there. And it would kind of lead into Final Fantasy XII, where those races would also play a large role in that game as well. That's right. Yeah, you would definitely see uh, most of those races, most of the, and of course the judges in Final Fantasy XII. As usual, you could really break Final Fantasy Tactics Advance. It was not the most balanced of games. And 
it didn't have as much replayability as the original Final Fantasy Tactics, but it was a lot of fun and it was a great tactical experience. There are a lot of good tactical games on the GBA, actually, Nadia, including yeah. uh, Onimusha Tactics for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was interesting. The interesting thing about the GBA is this was like, of course, the an era where a lot of like really sort of grown up violent games were appearing on the PS2 and what have you. And sometimes you just get like cute little strange adaptations of these really violent games that would never touch a Nintendo console on the GBA, like Onimusha Tactics. Tactics Ogre was another one? Yeah, was that any good? I never played it. I did not play that one. I just know that the original Tactics was on Super Nin- Tactics Ogre was on Super Nintendo, so it makes sense that there would be one on GBA as well. Yeah. And finally, we have Fire Emblem, which... Oh, what's that, losers? No one's heard of that. <laughs> So Advance Wars comes out in 2001, and right around the time of 9-11, if I recall correctly. Yes, that was a little weird. And to everybody's surprise, it is a success, because it has really nice graphics, distinctive uh, characters. The It's really accessible. Like, that was my first real uh, engagement with turn-based tactics, and I discovered that I love the genre because of Advance Wars. Yeah. So... In addition to the success of Marth and Roy on Smash Brothers Melee, the Advance Wars showed that there was an audience for Fire Emblem in, in the U.S., and they ended up replace, releasing Blazing Sword, Fire Emblem 7, in the U.S. Uh, they did not release the... What people may not know is that Fire Emblem Binding Blade came out in 2002. That was the one with Roy. So, yes, that's right. With uh, Fire Emblem on uh, GBA... You played as Roy's father, didn't you, Ephraim? Yeah, you were playing as Elliewood. Elliewood, that's it. But the because so many people with Blazing Sword was their first Fire Emblem, Hector, Lynn, and Elliewood are some of the most popular characters in the series, especially, I think, Hector and Lynn. That's always a little bit funny when that happens, because I think Japan is a little bit confused when stuff like that happens. Like, why are these characters so popular in America? And then they realize, oh... That was the first exposure we had to them. So, of course, we have, like, you know, a, cl- a close connection to these characters. It's very much the same with, like, Power Rangers, which was just some rando Sentai series, like, in Japan. And for a while, they were, they were trying to understand, why do you care about this, you know, this average Sentai show? And it's because of Power Rangers. Over in Japan, uh, Genealogy of the Holy War, Three Houses, and Awakening are the three most popular and I would say that probably Awakening is more popular than the original GBA Fire Emblem Blazing Sword over in the U.S. as well. But, yeah, definitely. But Blazing Sword is still quite popular. It was very accessible. It was a, a very attractive looking game. It had a s- solid story. I remember enjoying the soundtrack quite a bit. And of course, as I've already discussed at length in my Fire Emblem retrospective a few epi- several episodes back, I think maybe a year ago, uh, this was the game that got me into the series. I mm-hmm. discovered Fire Emblem because of Blazing Sword. I played through every single route of that game. I was completely in love with it. It was so much fun, and I still have a lot of fond memories. The thing that I really especially remember fondly is how good those sprites looked on the GBA screen. Yeah, if you look back at US Gamer, um, even though I loved Awakening, I kind of compared its so-so battle scenes to what you get in that game in Blazing Sword where the sprites, maybe they're not as detailed, of course, as Awakening, uh, as, um, sorry, not Awakening, Three Houses characters, but they move with a real heavy purpose that 
you know, even though you have to watch these animations over and over, you never get tired of them. Another Fire Emblem came out on the GBA. That was Sacred Stones. And it had a brother and a sister who are split up. And so you can play through one character's storyline and then you can jump over to the other character's storyline when you circle back and play it. And I really enjoyed it at the time. But you could kind of evolve characters into, like, from a base staff, like a a villager or whatever. And if you did so, you would create characters who were so broken that the game was practically (laughs) trivial. (laughs) That's kind of a Fire Emblem tradition, isn't it? I don't know if you can do it in in Three Houses. I'm sure you can to some extent. But I do know in Awakening, we had Donnie, the little kid with the pot on his head. And people just turned him into a, a freaking warlord. Like, he just destroyed the battlefield on his own. I just want to say that everybody's poo-poos permadeath and talks about how casual mode made that series. And maybe that's true. But I will say that there was something special in Blazing Sword about having a really powerful army at your back that nevertheless, if you made the wrong series of moves, could still die. There is an element of danger to the original Fire Emblem that I think is maybe missing in some of the later ones. And also, I really liked the almost puzzle-solving aspect uh, of the tactics. It was a great series. The thing, I remember getting very sad when I played the original Fire Emblem, uh, Blazing Sword, because there was a character, uh, I can't remember his name, that's how sad it was, I guess, but he was an axe wielder, started with a D, and he died. He permadeathed in my game, and he was the only one who permadeathed, thankfully, but it mentioned how he just never went home to his wife, and I was like, ah, oh, I fucked up so bad i felt so terrible jeez nadia breaking up families <laughs> exactly i like yourself. i can't that's why i play casual i just can't take that emotional burden <laughs> so uh, yeah uh fire emblem was kind of made on the gba and then it hit a new level of popularity i think when it eventually came on the 3ds but we'll get to that the the final tactics series which man does the GBA ever have a rich tactical legacy? It's a good it's a good system for tactical games because it's just, with that little screen, it's so easy to just move around these little pieces instead of watching something scroll by. Yeah, and it's really nice to be able to just jump into a tactics game for a little bit, play through a level, maybe even take a turn or two and then put it away. Yeah, it was very good about that. Though the GBA didn't have sleep mode, unfortunately, so you can no. just close the clamshell and then put it away. Charge that battery, man. <laughs> Uh, Super Robot Wars had a very significant presence on the GBA. Uh, among the games that came out were the Super Robot Wars original generation games, which brought together all of the protagonists created by Bando Nam- Bandai Namco for the first time uh, to tell a, an original story. And it was a lot of fun if you had played the previous games. And it was kind of following up from what Winkysoft had done with their Lord of Elemental games. The thing that really stands out is that Original Generation was the first Super Robot Wars game to actually get localized for North America by Atlas. I did not know that. It came out in 2006. And so for a lot of people, that was their only real way to actually uh, access those games. Subsequently, Super Robot Wars Original Generations would come out on the PS2, and then a sequel came out on the PS3. A lot of people swear by them. I've never been a huge fan of the Original Generations games because a large part of the reason that I play SRW is for the different shows that I like and seeing them interact. And so I'm not as invested in the characters that Bandai Namco created. 
But mm-hmm. the rest of the games that came out, Super Robot Wars A, D, R, and J. So many letters of the alphabet came out on the GBA. <laughs> I was going to say, have they gone through the whole alphabet by now? <laughs> I own Q. D, and the reason I liked D was because Victory Gundam was in it. Um, Super Robot Wars A is very hard. And when it came out on PSP, the port A portable, it looked nice, but man, oh man, does that game kick my butt because it is completely unforgiving in terms of accuracy and dodge rates. And then SRWJ, that is a very pretty looking game. It actually really puts the GBA's graphics to the absolute limit, Nadia. Mm -hmm. But like so many other GBA games, it was victimized by the gba's sound output all of the songs were really compressed did not sound great <laughs> that is too bad i was just thinking though when you were talking it's like okay if they go to the alphabet are they gonna have to like do punctuation like robot wars semicolon robot wars bracket <laughs> right bracket <laughs> well, left bracket we're running out of letters of the alphabet you're not wrong i think we still got to do y okay y is good they have we might Z. have to do srwn at some point well n's the best letter obviously one more point about SRWJ, and then I'll move on from it. It was actually quite controversial, Nadia. Do you know why? Uh, no. The reason it was controversial was that it did not feature any of the original pillars, which was Universal Century Gundam, uh, Mazinger, or Get a Robo. It featured variations of those. So it had Gundam Seed instead of Universal Century Gundam, which was a spin-off series. Had Mazenkaiser instead of Mazinger. I don't even think it had Getter Robo. And then it had, uh, it had a Tekaman Blade, which is a, a, kind of like characters in mecha suits or that kind of thing. Uh, and people are like, those aren't mechas; they're in power suits. <laughs> That's fair. Why do they make those changes though? Uh, I don't know. I think they were just trying to freshen it out, go for something a little bit different. But it did not go over well, and it's kind of signaled a sea change. And they're like, oh, they're trying to appeal to the kids with this Gundam seed. Uh, I don't like it. Yeah, the damn kids, get off my get off my lawn. It's all about Gundam Wing or nothing. <laughs> well, that was in Super Robot Wars W, which was the first one that I played. Oh, really? So that was your first one? Yeah, so that was on the Nintendo DS, a discussion for another time. Mm-hmm. So looking at the other major games that came out on the GBA. So we've spent a lot of time talking about games that were either ports or follow-ups to more popular series, I want to say. Fire Emblem, got its start on the Super Nintendo. Super Robot Wars, got its start on the Game Boy. Um, And then there's Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories, got its start on the PS2 and inexplicably ended up on the GBA. (laughs) Well, you got to get those Kingdom Hearts bucks wherever they will flow from. It was a big dang deal when it came out on the GBA because it was a Square game. The hottest square, new Square franchise around. Um, and it looked quite nice in screenshots. There was just one weird thing about it, Nadia. What? It was Kingdom Hearts? No. It had a card-based battle system. Oh, boy. Here we go. Good. Uh, so, so you would have this isometric exploration, right? Mm-hmm. And when you hit an enemy, you would go into a battle arena, almost like you were playing Final Fantasy or something like that. And the combat would continue in real time, but you would have these cards that would be cycling through. Um, and it actually wasn't terrible, but I think the second that you said card-based battler, a lot of people were instantly turned off. 
that was a very very card heavy sort of time of the time in in history because of Pokemon card games were huge. I think Yu-Gi-Oh was becoming huge around that time. So everyone was like cards 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 so I could see why people would think oh no, Kingdom Hearts are jumping on this stupid trend because of course uh, card video based uh, video game card games are very popular as well because of those the card game popularity in the real world. Interesting thing about Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories it is kind of a it is kind of a major game in the sense that it establishes a lot of what you will see in Kingdom Hearts 2, including Organization 13. It's where you see Axel. Some of the major locations are there. You see why Mickey, Donald, and Goofy and all of them are where they are because of Chain of Memories. So you can enjoy Kingdom Hearts 2 without it, but it, it adds a lot of background for Kingdom Hearts fans, which I always thought was interesting was that this kind of handheld spin-off that wasn't really a sequel, nevertheless very important. Yeah, I remember that being a thing and people, you know, uh, or Square trolling people a little bit with that because yeah, that was um that did fill in some story stuff as I understand. It eventually got ported or remade, I suppose, with Re Chain of Memories, which I'm not extremely familiar with, but I've seen more than a few Kingdom Hearts fans claim it is the worst Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> Wow. If you ask a Kingdom Hearts fan which one's the worst, they'll line up and tell you a whole bunch of different ones. That's surprising, given that this is a world in which uh, Coded and uh, 358 over two days exist. Those were some really bad games. The names alone should disqualify them from from existing. It's just, come on. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, man, when I look at this list, Nadia, like we've been talking for a little while now. And I feel like we still haven't even we haven't even gotten to Pokemon yet, Nadia. <laughs> what the hell is Pokemon? Uh, the GBA feels like a pretty important RPG machine, right? It really is. There's a there's a lot to dig through. Um, as you said, there were a lot of ports. It was the start of a lot of new franchises, or even just like spinoffs, like Mega Man Battle Network being a great example, which went from an action game to kind of an RPG. I don't know anything about Battle Network. Tell me about it, Nadia, as the Mega Man fan. Well, the interesting thing that about talking about Battle Network is Jeremy Parrish and I just recorded an episode about Battle Network, so please look forward to that on Retronauts. I don't believe it's up yet, but it will be eventually. Um, but yes, Battle Network was kind of a spin-off of the original Mega Man, and much like the way Mega Man Legends kind of worked really well within the PlayStation's limitations, so does Mega Man Legend? Uh, sorry. So does Mega Man Battle Network work, work well within the GBA's limitations? Mega Man is a program versus a you know a robot hero. He lives inside of a device called a PET or PET that's carried around by a, a young boy named Len, and they can kind of quote unquote jack in to different uh, you know appliances and whatnot and and fight viruses that invade them. And many of the viruses are based on. Uh, old Mega Man bosses, like one of the first ones you, you beat is, is Fireman. So there's a lot of familiarity and there's a lot that's different, particularly the battle system, which is a really, really unique mix of action and, and card-based uh, battle that doesn't suck. Mega Man can kind of move on a 9x9 grid and so can his enemies. And he can shoot his little pea shooter while waiting for his gauge to charge up. And once that gauge is charged up, he can select a card that lets him execute a more powerful attack. And what makes the battle so interesting is that you can screw around with the enemy's panels and they can screw around with yours. So they can break panels, which can impede their uh, your attacks. They can claim some of your panels for their own, so your territory is, is effectively 
uh, cut off. There's a lot of really interesting strategy going on in Mega Man Battle Network. The only problem with the game is that there are encounter rates galore and the the internet, quote-unquote, that you run around in has no map and it is very, very confusing and very, very tedious. A lot of people don't like to go back to the first game. The subsequent games improve on it, especially Mega Man 2, uh, Battle Network 2. Here's the thing that's really interesting about Battle Network, though. When I played it for the first time, it was like a, 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 there was a plot line early on where the stove was on fire and the stove was connected to the internet. And and uh, Lan's mother's like, oh, no, drag into the stove and, and get rid of the virus that, that's screwing around with my with my oven. And I'm like, this is such a weird concept. Why the hell would, the, would your stove be connected to the internet? And now all these damn appliances are connected to the internet. <laughs> and even though we don't have anything quite like a PET, a smartphone serves much of the same purpose. It's... A little bit uncanny, really. Do you know that people also use uh, home appliances and security cameras and that thing kind of thing to create botnets that allow them to uh, launch massive attacks on other people? Yes, it's terrifying. And it's exactly what it was in Mega Man Battle Network. And it's like, KJ Inafune, did you see the future? You totally and did. It's, it's a little scary. Um, I probably well, I don't want to. I don't want to linger on Mega Man Battle Network too long. I will say that... I was always kind of put off by, A, the art style, and B, I didn't really understand the concept behind it. I was like, what? You're inside the internet? That sounds stupid. <laughs> and I was much more into the concept of Mega Man Zero, which I got and was very, mm-hmm. very hard. And you wrote about that not too long ago with the Zero Collection. But I always kind of felt like the GBA was the, the platform that killed Mega Man because... Really? There were so many Mega Man Battle Network games, they just kept coming out to worse and worse reviews, and weren't, it, was, it was when Mega Man started to feel cheap, and Capcom was just throwing them out there for the heck of it. It stopped being a prestigious series, I felt, on the GBA. Six was the last one. It was actually, it was actually quite good. It was an improvement over five and four, and it finished. The story's done. Uh, Lan grew up, he got married. And R.I.P. Consti- R.I.P. <laughs> They continue with uh, Star Force, but we'll get to that one. Um, well, you see uh, the the Battle Network guy in Smash Brothers as part of one of Mega Man's final smashes. Yes, uh, you see you see all of the Mega Man from across the ages. Well, most of them anyway. Before we get on to po- Pokemon, which is our grand finale, I'm going to give you one minute to talk about Mario and Luigi. <laughs> Mario and Luigi was uh, one of the first RPGs that came out on the GBA. It's a very People who love it just kind of cite the way it's such a bouncy, character-driven game. Uh, to me, it was the first place we really saw Mario and Luigi being brothers, being you know, kind of palling around with each other. And Luigi was like a little bit of a coward, and Mario was the heroic one. And they, they kind of like gesture each other and speak in that totally garbled, not racist Italian, uh, whatever it is. And it's a very interesting battle system where the brothers kind of work in tandem with each other. I like the game for its character, and its graphics are amazing, and its its sense of humor is fantastic. My problem with it is I find the boss fights to be very, very tedious, so I was never a huge, huge fan of the first game. I did finish it on the, on the re-release, though, so there you go. Partners in Time bored me. <laughs> I never played Partners in Time. I heard that was kind of the weakest one. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember what the third one was called, but I remember that was... Wasn't that Sorry, Bowser's Inside Story? Bowser's Inside Story, that's it. And that's by far the best one. That's fantastic. Yeah, that one's actually funny. It's hilarious. And the mechanic where you're kind of transferring between the real world and Bowser's digestive system is like, wow, that's really disturbing, but I love it. 
Okay, really quickly, Super Mario RPG, Paper Mario, or Mario and Luigi, which one? I would say maybe Paper Mario, just barely over Mario and Luigi. Just because I find, like I said, the battle system in Mario and Luigi can be a little confusing sometimes. It kind of depends. It relies a bit on your reflexes and the ability to not confuse button presses, which I do all the time. Paper Mario is a little more straightforward. Uh, but I still I still love both almost equally. The original the original Super Mario RPG um, is fine. I just don't have a lot of nostalgia for it. Okay, Nadia, let's talk about Pokemon, which, interesting times. So the Gen 3 was on the GBA, and that the GBA is one of the few Nintendo handhelds to not get two generations, uh, because the first Game Boy had Gen 1 and Gen 2, GBA had Gen 3, DS had Gen 4 and Gen 5, the 3DS had Gen 6 and Gen 7, and now the Switch has Gen 8. So that just goes to show how brief the GBA's run actually was. And I think we've talked about this probably in the past, especially when Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire came out about a billion years ago. I forgot about that. Holy crap. Oh, God. Was that like six years ago at this point? It's ridiculous. I think it's longer than that, but yeah. Yeah, I think I had more or less just started at US Gamer when Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire came out, which kind of blows my mind, but okay. (laughs) Gen 3, I think we've kind of talked about this on this podcast before, but Gen 3 was a very controversial entry. So we were coming off Gold and Silver, which was the height of the series to that point. They poured, Game Freak poured its entire soul into that game, figuring that it would be the finale of the series. And then it was time to go to a new console. And Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, a lot of people are like, I love those ones. And it's like, okay, Ruby and Sapphire (laughs) did not have a day-night cycle not a proper one. It like removed a lot of features. It did not launch with all of the Pokemon. It only had 210 or like 200 Pokemon. That was hugely controversial. Of, yeah, only 200 out of the original 386. It was the original uh, Dexit. It was the original Dexit. It really was. It did not connect at all to the original Ruby, uh, Red and Blue or Gold and Silver, which drove people crazy. People were hacking into their cards. Because here, this is the kicker, Nadia. With the Sword and Shield, a lot of those Pokemon aren't actually in the game. They don't have them. All mm. of the sprites for the all 386 Pokemon were actually in Ruby and Sapphire. They were just locked away. That is so crazy. If you did that today, like you would have a, you would have a riot. I think I've probably talked in the past that this was my Pokemon Awakening. <laughs> my Pokemon Awakening, whatever that means, in the sense that I started frequenting the IGN Pokemon boards around this time. I discovered the competitive battle community. I started playing on IRC through the bots. I was intimately familiar with Ruby and Sapphire's battle system before I ever actually played Ruby and Sapphire. That is weird. Why did you do that? Well, because I was playing on these text-based bots on IRC. Uh, And I was a poor college student who couldn't actually afford Ruby and Sapphire. uh, Man, those like old IRC bots. Good times. Yeah, I know. It was a lot of fun. You would be, you would hit a hit command, and then you would just watch the colored text scroll up really fast, and you're like, what happened? What happened? <laughs> Pokemon mush. <laughs> and um, yeah, like, actually, Ruby and Sapphire were pretty formative to Pokemon today. It changed the mechanics into a way that a lot of people would recognize, because it introduced EVs and IVs in the way that we know them now. It introduced traits made Gengar hella OP because its ability was the ability to levitate, which allowed it to avoid uh, earthquakes and that kind of thing. 
So you couldn't kill it, basically. Yes. Uh, Gen 3 was our first remake because we got Fire Red and Leaf Green at that time because Pokemon was... It was nearing its 10th anniversary <laughs> around that point. It came out in 2004 in the U.S. And I enjoyed uh, Fire Red and Leaf Green. Added a lot, I felt. Uh, it still had the static sprites, which was kind of annoying. And by the way, Pokemon's graphics were looking a little long in the tooth. The fact that it had static sprites in 2003, 2004 wasn't great. Yeah, people have always been down on Pokemon's look. Like, people are really down on it now with uh, the Sword and Shield. But no, they were like just not impressed with it in uh in ruby and sapphire and then of course Colosseum comes around so now you have this giant messy ecosystem where if you want to get all 386 pokemon you gotta get ruby and sapphire you gotta get uh Colosseum, you gotta get maybe gale of darkness fire red and leaf green and even then if you're an american you still couldn't get celebi i actually sent my cartridge to england <laughs> and had them put celebi <laughs> on that thing just so that i could have it and I don't, I can't believe that I actually did that, but there you go. Did it come back? Oh yeah, yeah, it came back. Uh, the I'm person, impressed. I'm still Facebook friends with the person who was nice Aww. enough to put Celebi on that cartridge. But yeah, so interesting time. I, I think that was probably the peak of me playing Pokemon in terms of Pokemon battling. That was when I was my absolute best. I played that game freaking constantly. I knew the battle system inside and out, even though I wasn't actually that good at it. But that's, I digress. Anyway, uh, Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, do you have any memories of that series, Nadia? It's really not my favorite at all. Um, mm. For a lot of the reasons you already listed, I am not a competitive battler, as we have gone over many, many times. But from a story slash gameplay standpoint, I felt like Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire were severely diminished. As you said, no day or night cycle, which to me was like such a really cool addition to the game because, wow, you can catch this knocked owl at night. That's amazing. And that was amazing for the time, to be honest, with, with gold and, and silver. But I just remember just not being impressed with like the fact, okay, a lot of Pokemon are gone. That felt really awful. Um, the just, ha you know, not having some of my favorites there. And the only thing that really impressed me was how your you could see your reflection in the water. That was kind of cool. And I know people had dump weather. on. That's true. It did have weather, but I don't care about weather. Never have. People You're dump from Canada. <laughs> Canadians talk about the weather all the time. That's all we got. But in Pokemon, I'm just like, oh, yay, it's raining. That's that's fantastic. Um, I know IGN got a lot of heat for the whole 7.0, too much, too much water thing or whatever they said. But I understand what they mean because having to surf everywhere and you have to... It's not like new Pokemon games where you press a button and you're surfing. No, you had to select surf, select your Pokemon, watch a little animation of them doing, like, I don't know what the hell they were doing, but you had to, like, watch that go by, and then finally you'd be able to surf. And you're talking about going from, like, one small island to the next. So you did it over and over again. It really was too much water. Yeah, and there were eight, like, things like the dive HM. Kind of annoying. Oh, right. You had, like, 50 billion HMs. Just, and I recognize what it did for the series, by f sure, but I just did not click with it. I said, this is this is crap, and I, I abandoned it. And I think I didn't play another Pokemon. Well, I did play, like, you know, Diamond and Pearl, but I was just kind of eh about it. And I don't think I really got back into Pokemon until uh, Black and White and uh, Heart, Gold, and Soul Silver really brought, really brought me back to it as well. A lot of people bailed on Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, for sure. Uh, you are not alone. Yeah. But a few points in favor of Gen 3. It had the best starters. Yes, 
I even put Blaziken, Sceptile, and uh, Marshstomp or Swampert over uh, Charizard and, and those because they were more interesting to look at. I'm saying. Yeah, I do admit that the. Um, what was the evolution of uh, of Trico? That was. Sceptile. Uh, Sceptile, yeah. Sceptile is pretty cool. Uh, I think his tail is awesome. <laughs> I just yeah, like Sceptile ruled. And yeah. it speaks to their popularity that they were the ones who got. Uh, ultra forms or the omega evolutions or whatever you call them ultra yeah. mega evolutions there you go uh yeah before any of uh before a lot of other starters honestly and yeah they continue to be kind of held in a lot of high esteem by pokemon fans also pokemon emerald i think is one of the absolute best games in the series believe it or not because it by emerald you could get all of the pokemon and it had animated characters and it combined the storylines of Ruby and Sapphire into something more expanded. It had cutscenes and it had the battle frontier, which freaking ruled, which is one reason that Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire drove me crazy was because it ignored all of the good stuff that came out of Emerald and actually was a giant step back from Emerald. Which, it just boggled my mind. I could not believe it. <laughs> that is kind of stupid. And Emerald also had Rayquaza, which I admit is one of my favorites. Oh, the Battle Frontier, by the way. For God's sake, Game Freak, put it in. Just put <laughs> the Battle Frontier in. Okay. <laughs> They're doing it to spite you, Kat. It's, it's all it is by this point. Okay, Nadia, let's wrap up our discussion of the console RPG quest for the GBA. What do you think the GBA's legacy is for RPGs? Well, given the short time that the GBA was around, it, it has a really fantastic legacy. Uh, for one thing, it let us play some ports that maybe we missed out on on the Super Nintendo. In some cases, it improved upon those ports, like I mentioned, the better translations for many of the games. It gave us some new franchises like Golden Sun, which hopefully will rise again, so to speak. And it kind of introduced Westerners to just, uh, you know... Uh, tactical rpgs and that is a big big thing when you look at the popularity of, of three houses i think that the gba has a much richer legacy than i ever gave it credit for i it think does. it is I, I agree it is a great last hurrah for the 16-bit era the super nintendo in particular has such a rich array of wonderful games and more so than the game boy or maybe even the DS, I have a lot of GBA games still in my cabinet, and I will break them out periodically, put them into my GBA SP, and they still hold up really well. Yeah, it's funny you mention that, because I feel like GBA, out of all the old systems out there, the GBA still has a real pick-up-and-go feel to it, more than a lot of other systems. Yeah, and I think Metroid Zero Mission, second-best Metroid game, it was... I mean, yeah, it was another remake. There were so many remakes and ports and kind of updates to existing series, but a lot of them were really high quality. Metroid yeah. Fusion was another one. It wasn't an RPG, but there you go. So. Yeah, no, you're right. Zero Mission was a really, really good remake. So, Nadia, what do you think is the best RPG on the GBA? Oh, that's a that's a hard one. Um, my The one I really had the most fun with was definitely Final Fantasy IV Advance. I just... That was the one that kind of really made me fall in love with the game more so than ever. And same with Final Fantasy VI. It was really, it was really a treat to finally see the translation just kind of buffed up the way it deserved to be. I think Fire Emblem gets a slight edge over Pokemon Emerald for me. Because Fire Emblem was 
not only did it make the series what it was, that it gave it that toehold that it needed in the U.S., it was just a really dang good Fire Emblem game. And I don't know of many Fire Emblem games that have ever topped it. I think that it is still my personal favorite game in the series. I would like to go back to it someday. And if there were to be one GBA RPG that I would pick up and play again, it would probably be Fire Emblem. But, wow. We spent a lot of time talking about GBA RPGs. There's so much to cover. There's one that we didn't quite get to, but we're going to get to that in the next segment. So don't you worry, like all of those people. Hold your comments. We (laughs) haven't forgotten it. In the meantime... What do you think was the best GBA RPG? What do you consider to be the GBA's legacy? What are your memories of the GBA? We want to hear them. Leave a comment. Send me a DM on Twitter. Or send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. All right. Let's continue on to the track of the week, Nadia. Okay. It is time for the track of the week in which every single week we pick a classic track from an rpg that you may recognize and this week's is from the gba one of the better soundtracks on the gba i would say let's see if you recognize this track That's right. This track is from Mother 3. It is titled Unfounded Revenge. Nadia, why did you pick this track? Well, first of all, I have to say, there you go. We did not forget Mother 3. Do not panic. (laughs) (laughs) Don't panic, everybody. We're talking about Mother 3. I picked Unfounded Revenge because, for one thing, you've probably heard the remix in Smash Brothers. It was the game. It was the song that was introduced alongside Lucas in Brawl. So you might be familiar with it already. Um, But in the context of the original game, it's like most of the the songs in Mother 3. It really does a really good job taking advantage of the dinky sound chip. It's very driving, very forceful. Uses trumpets. Uh, God, the GBA had a lot of trumpets in his music. I mean, the Hoenn region is in in Pokemon is practically made a meme from that. When you hear this song, basically you are fighting against. Uh, what is known as a fierce pork trooper. And this is Mother 3, so everything's a little bit strange in addition to really depressing. And Porky is ruling over this this world, and his soldiers are known, are known as pork troopers. And the fierce pork trooper is an enormous boss who is getting ready to pound you. And he can. He is very capable of it. Unless you have merchandise for DCMC on your person. And DCMC, as its name kind of suggests is a band that everyone, all the pork troopers, are just completely crazy about. So if you give him, like, a pamphlet that's from, you know, DCMC and has the merchandise, he will basically be so enthralled that he will forget to attack you. And this is by far the best way to attack the boss. Of course, if you sell the pamphlet or something or throw it away because you're like, why do I have this thing? Uh, You're out of luck. Good luck fighting this guy. 
but at least as he's just kind of destroying you, you have this really awesome song just playing in the background. Uh, the remix that they have for Smash also includes, um, I think the song is called uh, Smashing Song of Praise, which also appears in Boss Battles and Mother 3. So they just kind of wove the two songs together and made one big song out of it, and it's pretty dang cool. Yeah, I was listening to it, and I really enjoyed it. It gave me a little bit of a whiff of Uematsu in some ways. It kind of reminded me of certain music from Final Fantasy VI, I want to say. Yeah. Um, ironically, it does a lot better a job of having it. The soundtrack does a lot better job than Final Fantasy VI Advance's soundtrack. Yeah, I think it's because of all the trumpets. And maybe I was thinking about, for example, when you're fighting Ultros in the in the band pit, Like, I feel like that was the kind of music that was playing. Yes, exactly. That's a very good comparison. That's a... Uh... I don't know the name of that song that plays when you fight Ultros, but you hear it once in the game, and it's so appropriate. It's just perfect. And this is the same way, maybe a little bit more angry-sounding, but it's still still a joke fight in many ways, the way the fight with Ultros is a joke fight, so that's a nice comparison. And it was composed by Shogo Sakai. Uh, Sakai, interestingly, has not... He's been around in the industry for quite a while. He was with HAL from 1996 onward. He's done work on Kirby games, but a lot of the time he's arranging tracks that kind of are already there. It's like Kirby Nightmare in Dreamland is kind of emblematic of a lot of his work. He's done a lot of work on Smash Brothers and that kind of thing. Does a great job, though. I enjoy a lot of his arrangements in Smash Brothers. Yeah, he definitely seems to be involved in the more technical aspect of music. But if you ever get a chance to just kind of listen to Mother 3's soundtrack, do it. Because I personally feel like, despite the GBA's limitations, the soundtrack for Mother 3 does a much better job of conveying emotion than the original Earthbound soundtrack does sometimes. Um, and you will find actually some really great remixes of classic uh, Earthbound slash Mother uh, songs in Mother 3, including, I think you hear Pollyanna and you hear... Uh, Snowman. I didn't like the, the remix of Snowman in Earthbound so much, but I love it here. I don't want to be sacrilegious. Sacrilegious. <laughs> Delicious. But when it... I, I think that Mother 3... I like its soundtrack better than what I heard in Earthbound, which even though it was uh, composed in part by Hip Tanaka, who of course is a legend in NES composition circles and everything, I, I just... I found the... Earthbound soundtrack to be a little esoteric and repetitive and annoying and grinding. A little bit, yeah, I agree. Um, the one the one thing that Mother 3 has, and Earthbound has it as well, is they have different themes while you're fighting, and that's for random enemies as well as bosses. And I have said many, many times that is a great idea that very few RPGs adapt, and it makes me mad. But I feel like Mother 3 has the more driving soundtracks for fights, and the reason for that, of course, is that you are meant to kind of press the button along to the tune to register extra damage. Uh, my favorite battle theme is called Fate, so look that up and give it a listen because I can still kind of feel my thumb twitch to that to that particular theme. Someday I will play Mother 3. I uh, I was appreciated the, the dark outlook on it and how weird it was and 
the music is really good and it looks dang good on the GBA screen. Last time I was at the Portland Retro Game Expo, I found a table that had a lot of fans fan translated import RPGs that had been flashed onto GBA carts. So that mm-hmm. was how I was able to get Fire Emblem Binding Blade. So maybe next time I'll keep an eye out for Mother 3. Yeah, I would actually love to have a solid cartridge of that. It has a great translation by uh, Clyde Mandalin, who of course did the... Um, has a great translation by Clyde Mandalin, who is the proprietor of Legends of Localization. One of the best fan translations I've ever, I've ever experienced, if not the best fan translation. I have written about Mother 3 extensively on US Gamer, so if you just kind of go to the site and look up Mother 3, you will definitely find something. Okay, that is our track of the week. Do you have thoughts on Mother 3? Do you have a track that you would like us to tackle? Send me a DM or send me an email or leave a comment and we'll take it into consideration. We pick a lot of these. If you can't tell, we pick a lot of these track of the weeks based on the theme of the episode, but sometimes it's nice to have some suggestions. So, all right, Nadia, let's continue on to the mailbag. And we've been kind of reading them scattershot throughout this episode. Yeah, we kind of have, haven't we? Uh, Last week, we were talking about Xenoblade Chronicles, and we were talking about Paper Mario. Uh, Ken Westlier says, I love Xenoblade because NOA couldn't ignore there was a core market that actually wanted this game, and it was a good one. I thought it was great because it had tons to explore at your own pace. Granted, some areas were gated by high-level monsters. It still had enough patience to let players play the game on their own terms without feeling too grindy. For all the side quest criticisms, it was awesome that they could be completed as soon as you got them because you did your own thing, preserving your own pacing. And all the gameplay content looped into one another, so it was never empty padding. It unlocked a bunch of stuff that revealed more thematic content without relying on a ton of cutscenes. And the story and plot is gorgeous. For all its cliches, they get subverted right when you get bored and wraps up nicely. So... Yeah, next week we're going to be talking about Xenoblade Chronicles with Katie as part of our Ah. full review of Definitive Edition. That will be interesting. I'm looking forward to playing the game, so yes. And Drinking with Skeleton says, Thousand Year Door is well-written, but the gameplay is pretty standard JRPG stuff. It's nothing revolutionary, but it's fun enough to keep the player engaged in the story. The writing for subsequent Paper Mario games has been quite good, but the gameplay has gone from serviceable to wretchedly bad. Colors Splash was a hoot, except for the omnipresent battle system, and I never finished it because it was too much of a chore. If I had cheats when I could skip the battles and get to the rest of the game, I would have done that, which is an insane thing to say about a Nintendo (laughs) game. I don't think that seeking novelty in the gameplay is bad, but novelty is not a virtue unto itself, and if they can't pull these new systems off, I don't understand the insistence on not going back. I'll take a competent gameplay system over a bad one any day, even if it's old and musty. I don't understand the desire to defend the Paper Mario games for trying new things when these new things consistently aren't very good. Oh, that sounds a lot like Star Fox. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's, that's a good comparison, definitely. I think Paper Mario's new stuff is a little more successful than Star Fox's, though. It's like, why, Nintendo, do you insist in putting these esoteric and weirdly experimental gameplay systems on a perfectly solid shoot 'em up Just make the yeah. freaking shoot 'em up <laughs> All we want to do is be a furry in space. That's all it is. Uh, all I want, Nadia, is a proper Star Fox game on eShop or something. I really hope they don't give up on the franchise. It's too good to give up on. It has too much potential. I don't know that it has potential anymore, but I do love it, and I love a good shoot-em-up. So let's just make it happen, Nintendo. I, I was going to say, all you have to do is give us a good shoot-em-up with Star Fox. That's all we want. It's not that complicated. It's a shame that Star Fox never came out on the GBA, huh? 
Yeah, that would have been pretty cool. That would have been interesting. I would have liked to see that. Yeah, they did put Star Fox 64 on the 3DS. It was fine, but the sound voices were just a little bit off. Yeah, just just a tiny bit to kind of drive you crazy if they're embedded in your head. <laughs> All right, Nadia Axe, the blog out is EOS Gamer Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Make sure to follow us on social media. I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter, which comes out every single Wednesday. We'll be back next week, as always, to be talking more about RPGs. We'll be reviewing Xenoblade with Katie doing a full review, maybe with spoilers. Who knows? It'll be very exciting. But until then, I hope you have a hope you had a great holiday weekend and you enjoyed it. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and until next time, happy adventuring. <laughs>